Episode 77 of the Juicebox Podcast is sponsored by Insulate, makers of the Omnipod, the world's only tubeless insulin pump. With so much talk in the news about EpiPen pricing and now insulin costs, I thought this is the right time to talk to Anthony DeFranco. I heard you sit in your car. You just said, who? Anthony DeFranco. What does that mean? Anthony is a Yale grad. He is a super smart guy. He is a motivated gentleman. He's also got the spirit of a young man, of an inventor, of a scientist, and and he wants to make the world a better place. He also has type 1 diabetes, and he's trying to make insulin by himself in a laboratory. Well, not by himself. There's something called the Open Insulin Project. There's a group of people in a lab that's crowdsourced trying to make insulin. That sounded like an interesting conversation to have, especially with what's going on in the world today. Our conversation, you know, it just got deeper than I thought it was. You know, we started talking about the idea of making insulin and kind of the real scientific nuts and bolts and the patent ideas and, you know, all the intricacies of it. Our conversation quickly switched and we just started talking more about the ideas behind it. you know, more about the community and the people. And, and I even sort of played devil's advocate and argued both sides because I, I have to admit, I, I also understand companies trying to make a profit and I understand you not wanting your life to be about profit. So there's a lot of different aspects to this conversation. And Anthony, and I did a pretty good job of talking about most of them. Let's see what you think. My name is Anthony DeFranco. Um, I've been working on the Open Insulin Project at Counterculture Labs in Oakland for about a year. I have type 1 diabetes myself, which is one of the reasons that uh, it's an interesting question to work on for me. I was diagnosed with it about 10 years ago. So you're in your, you're in your early 30s? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the Open Insulin Project is that's a fascinating idea so tell me what that is so in counterculture labs counterculture labs first of all is a a uh, hacker space focusing on biohacking so um people interested in biotechnology and uh bringing the knowledge and the tools uh of biotechnology to the people so to speak um letting people uh, tinker with things that they're interested in and solve their own problems with these tools. Anthony, people who are people who are reasonably qualified to do those things, or like, can I come in and try to turn myself into Spider-Man, or what? What's the parameters? Everything that happens is is kind of bounded by uh, how how uh, biology works. So, I suppose you could come in and say that you wanted to try to turn yourself into Spider-Man and then you would get into some discussions about how uh, that would be pretty difficult and and if you didn't get the message then you know people might think that it wasn't wasn't worth uh, spending time trying to help you out uh, so the, so the but, collective group has conversations about all ideas that come in yeah the way that you the way that people uh, work on an idea is basically that they they put out a call to the group that uh, they want to work on a certain project, and then others will come and, uh, if they're interested, uh, try to help out. Okay. So if if no one is interested, then uh, you don't get a response. 
Yeah, you know, you can try to, I suppose you could try to go it alone. No one ever has, because uh, that's really uh, too difficult for something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, there's there's kind of a, a built-in informal vetting process just in how things work. And there are some guidelines on whether you can do anything uh, actually dangerous that you can't. Uh, so there are these uh, biosafety level guidelines that are kind of a de facto standard in, in industry and academia, and mm-hmm. we follow those. So you can't work with pathogens. You can't work with uh, mammalian cells yet. Uh, but you can, um, can certainly do things in E. coli and yeast and the Open Insulin Project. Uh, that's plenty for the vegan cheese project that is also going on. That is plenty. Um, so, so those projects have gotten interest and they fall within the, uh, the safety guidelines. So in this same, in this same space, there's a group working on trying to develop insulin and there's a group working on trying to develop vegan cheese. Yeah, there's, there's those two groups and there's, uh, there's another group working on a bacterial sunscreen. Uh, so that's going to try to get E. coli to express uh, ultraviolet absorbing proteins. Um, wow. And uh, that's amazing. Okay. Pro- yeah, <laughs> Jeez. Well, the project's also not just in our space, but there are a lot of collaborations between our space and BioCurious, which is down in Sunnyvale. Okay. So even from lab to lab, there's, there's connections. Yeah. Really amazing. So oh. yeah, the, the community is pretty big. Pretty, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's big, but also uh, there's there's some, to some degree, everyone knows everyone else, so it's it's like a, a big, small world. So let me ask you one question before we kind of jump into the idea of, of your insulin project, because I've, I've spoken to people in the past who take something that pre-exists and they tinker with it to change it or to make it work better for them. They don't appreciate the word hackers, but you guys use the word hackers, so um I don't personally care one way or the other. I'm just, how come you guys are comfortable with it? What, what is it about what you're doing? For me, it was something that ever since I was very young, I was comfortable with. Um, I, I grew up in, uh, in uh, suburban Cleveland, so it was pretty far removed from any kind of action, especially back in the 90s when the internet was you know, the web barely existed, but I was also very interested in computers in part because it could connect you to this broader world of everything that was going on. So I, I got into computer culture and I, I saw, um, this magazine called 2600, the hacker quarterly. And I said, Oh, that sounds cool. And maybe I can learn about things I'm interested there. And they had editorials, um, that would talk about, hacker culture and hacker values and they pointed me in the direction of some some even older documents um like the the hackers dictionary and the exploits of the hackers at MIT uh going back now like 40 50 years um so that was what defined 
to me what it meant to be a hacker was uh, what it meant to the early pioneers of computing, which is not someone who had any kind of malicious intent, but was just someone who understood things at a deep level and uh, could could go beneath the surface to accomplish things that others couldn't. You're diagnosed with type one diabetes in your twenties, and you know you're you're going along. What were you doing then? Were you in Were you in well, grad actually, school? Were you? Yeah, it was still in college. It was. It was literally my last semester. Uh, during my undergraduate. So, okay. and what what was your degree? What was your undergrad degree in, and where'd you go? Um, I was at Yale, and I studied computer science and math and physics. Okay. And I was going to go to Yale, but they didn't want me to come. I should have asked nicely. <laughs> I should see. I probably went about it all wrong. Yeah. When you when you get out of when you get out of Yale with that degree, uh, I'm assuming you you continue on um, to grad school. Well, it was uh, it was a little bit interesting for me because I I got into I was accepted by uh, the robotics program, the a robotics lab. Science program at Carnegie Mellon. I was really eager to go, but then I found at the last minute that I didn't have any funding, and I would need to have gotten my own funding to to actually go to grad school, even though I was accepted. So it was a bit of a surprise for me. And also, I had just had untreated diabetes for six months, so I wasn't in the best of health, and I wasn't entirely on top of this task of going and getting my own funding. And it, it yeah. kind of fell through at the last minute. So um, I ended up uh, looking for a job. Uh, and I that's ultimately how I ended up to move, uh, moving to the Bay Area. There are a number of companies that make insulin that all, by all accounts work as well as any insulin that's ever been on the planet so far. And it's really expensive. Um, and not everyone can afford it. And I'm assuming that's is that what led you into this idea? Is the idea that there are a lot of people around the world who don't have access to insulin? Um, well, oddly enough, that that came a little a little bit after we had uh, decided to try to make insulin. Then we were trying to see, like, well, who might be interested in helping us? And I wasn't really. I kind of had a vague sense that there might be problems with access to insulin, but I had no idea the extent of the issue. Um, you have insurance and yeah hasn't been an issue for you in your yeah. life it hasn't never been an issue for us either. well you know it's been i've noticed that it's really expensive uh you know if i look at the bill and what it would have cost me before insurance it's like a staggering number but i've never actually had to pay that so i assume that it was just part of the normal bullshit of how um uh how they, how they make how how everyone makes their money yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um and how your hospital stay was 9 million dollars your portion 45 yeah that, yeah that and so i'm you know i'm used to being an excuse for 
someone to move money from one column of a ledger over to another and you know like i'm just the middleman and i don't none of that ever really touches me but but then after we'd started the project we discovered that you know not everyone has the the kind of magical status that just makes things happen behind the scenes and makes them work out um right so but anyway um the way we got started on it is so so i'm in the bay area um i'm interested in uh hacking and people are founding these things called hacker spaces that sounds like my kind of place so um and and simultaneously i was also interested in um uh economic alternatives and community currencies in particular and so i I went out to some of those meetups. I I uh, led a reading group about food-backed currencies for a while, and a lot of those people were kind of savvy activist types, and they also turned up in the hackerspace. And so I thought, all right, this is really interesting. This is a couple different important things coming together, and there's like uh, a combination of like the the technical goals of people in hackerspaces with the the social goals and social concerns. So uh, that was especially interesting. Um, and then a group got together to found a hackerspace in Oakland, which is close to where I live in Berkeley. So I was very interested in helping out with that. That's called Pseudo Room. And that was more like a as far as the hacking goes, it was more focused on like computers and electronics, so a, a more your standard hacker space. But then some of those people and some other people wanted to found a biohacking space, and that was also, of course, really interesting to me because simultaneously I'm pretty, I'm tinkering around with a lot of different ways to treat my diabetes. I, I got an insulin pump, I got a jet injector, I'm reading about all these different kinds of things, and of course, being of a hacker mind, I'm, I'm interested in maybe building my own things because I noticed that all this stuff is very proprietary. A friend of mine introduced me to Barnaby Jack also, who is a security researcher who is working on insulin pumps. Um, and uh, he basically found out that uh, with a major brand of insulin pump, it is very easy to wirelessly control all of the features of it without knowing anything specific to the pump, like the serial number. Like, basically, they just didn't put the security in. You know, that also opened my eyes to the idea that um, if, if you, someone with the knowledge could, could make a really important contribution and advance things past what all of these weird um, bureaucratic and economic constraints on the institutional actors uh, allow. I went to the hackerspace and I was kind of asking around and saying, hey, does anyone, might anyone want to be interested in working on like an open hardware, open software insulin pump? And I was going around asking people about that a lot. I was also looking into um, uh ways to measure glucose that uh, wouldn't use consumable supplies. 
So ways to administer it, ways to ways to administer insulin, ways to measure blood glucose that didn't require consumable supplies because that was a big frustration is that I've got this waste train going by me every day and you know every every little thing that I'm using up and throwing away has a little price tag attached to it and I'm very aware of that and um I don't want to create this waste. I don't want to spend this money and this money might be prohibitive to someone else of course doesn't have it to spend so so I was looking into jet injectors I was looking into um uh radio frequency spectro- spectroscopy for measuring uh blood glucose um just throwing those ideas out there in the hackerspace to anyone who would listen um and some of the biohackers were people of a biohacking bent were interested in that sort of thing um and um eventually well well after that some some people's attention turned to making the insulin itself and initially i wasn't that interested in making the insulin itself because um it's pretty easy to get the insulin and it seemed to me like it would be kind of hard to make it versus buying it um right and 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 it didn't it also doesn't fix a problem as far as um as a waste trail it's it, it wasn't where your mind was i guess in that space yeah. well it turns it turns out that um uh shipping all of this stuff around from these centralized distribution points and refrigerated trucks isn't the most efficient way to do it necessarily um and it also um it, that is uh one of the main barriers to access insulin in places that don't have uh, good infrastructure that can that can support this supply keep, chain. Keep it cold and support it and move it around. Yeah. How about that? So, yeah, okay. and that ties into another theme that came up in in the you know, the economic uh, alternative economics groups I was a part of, and people who were into into uh, like decentralized peer to peer infrastructure. Like it turns out that running these really long supply chains from these centralized distribution points is just very economically inefficient. And a big part of the reason why it happens is that it is subsidized in various ways. Like it doesn't make economic sense to just make stuff in one big factory and then ship it all around the world versus having lots of little factories that would be closer to the point of use. So that was also something that started to work its way into this picture around insulin that was developing in my mind. Um, so, so eventually, so are, you, so are you making, are you making insulin? I mean, obviously you can't copy somebody's, I'm, I'm assuming recipe is still a word you would use, but you can't use someone's formula. And, and so you start from scratch and are you using the same ingredients, the same processes, or did you just completely start new? Well, that's that's kind of a complicated question. So, well, the first the first thing that we were trying that came out of the talks that were specifically about making insulin was to make a like a bioreactor, basically just like a a fermenting machine that has um, provisions to like control the temperature and the pH and other things that are important to the yeast growing. And you would like load your yeast in, and the yeast would have the insulin gene and Maybe it would have uh, 
it would put a tag on the insulin protein that would instruct the machinery of the cell to excrete the yeast out out of the cells and then maybe you could try to purify it from that solution that the, uh, the yeast is growing in so so that was the first idea for how to make insulin that encompasses part of how someone makes insulin industry which is the process control part i guess then we found that you know there was this other part that we weren't paying attention to that was really important which is what kind of a gene do you actually introduce what kind of modifications to the organism do you actually make such that it produces insulin which organism do you use um, how specifically do you purify the insulin? How do you get it out? How do you purify it? Um, so then we decided that actually it was premature to think about automating something that we didn't know what it was we were automating. So we switched the focus to these questions that you just mentioned, which is what is the recipe in the first place? And so then made the acquaintance through this network of people who were interested in insulin of Isaac Yonemoto, who had currently he's working on open source cancer treatments. In the past, he had done uh, work in an academic setting with insulin. So he was able to give us a quick overview of how it's produced, uh, what the issues are in producing it that uh, uh, is potentially difficult some sense of how the different major pharmaceutical companies differ and how they produce it and what we might try to successfully produce it in our small scale setting with restricted resources. So that pretty much gave us the knowledge we needed to go ahead and try to figure out our own recipe for this. And there's also a lot of existing literature. And for that, we had to take into account some of these concerns that you mentioned, which is, is some aspect of some process patented um, or otherwise. And a patent isn't a barrier to doing something for research purposes, but it is a barrier to producing it for other people to use. Since we had simultaneously been learning that this question of access to insulin is you know, a big, important one, um, we thought we, whatever we did, we should try to do it such that other people could could hypothetically use use the product in the end. Um, of course, there's a lot of steps in between working out a new protocol that we hope would be simpler and having that become a commercial product. And some of those reasons are totally legitimate issues of safety and efficacy, and some of them are just um, a huge set of layers of bureaucracy that are imposed on top of those questions. And between the two, um, we, we decided we would just focus on testing an idea we had for making the insulin and E. coli in the simplest possible way we could think of, and then um, refer to the existing literature on how you make insulin and E. coli and uh, for all the steps that we weren't specifying and thinking of trying to innovate on and looking at literature that was um, old enough that there probably wouldn't be patent questions. Um, and it's very hard to be sure about whether 
there are patent questions or not because it's a very complex area of law and I think ultimately that would also be something where we'd have to um, get get an expert to look at it if if there was a more concrete reason to to have a closer look plus I I would imagine that people who have patents on those processes aren't making them I mean would they do they, do they have to be shared I guess because they're patented are you able to see them or is that it, well that theoretically be... that's the whole reason or one of the main reasons that patents exist is to get people to publicly disclose their inventions so that's what a patent application is, is it's supposed to be this public disclosure of your invention it is sufficiently detailed that someone else could reproduce it and the idea was that you would you would be given a monopoly for uh, a very limited time and in return you would have to publicly disclose your invention and then once your monopoly expired which was supposed to be soon after the patent was granted then uh, you know, everyone else would be able to compete with you and produce it. And so it's supposed to be a net economic gain. It's supposed to be a net increase in the competitiveness of the market. Um, sadly, that's not how it really ended up working out because uh, the term kept getting extended and um, uh, uh, the uh, producers started to collude around um, uh, like hoarding up patents that they could threaten each other with, and it ended up forcing smaller players out of the mark, out of markets that have a lot of patents in them entirely, and so it just became this really strong force for um, creating monopolies and oligopolies and centralizing markets. So you just sort of broke my heart a little bit because now I'm recognizing that that old Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial where they said the recipe for the chicken was locked in a safe. It's not. It's public. I could figure out how to make that chicken right now. If I well, wanted. I don't know. That's, see, the, a trade secret is different from a patent. So a trade secret is something that a company decides not to publicly disclose. And for some reason, these have legal protections too. Uh, so, and that's like... Um, uh it's it's really it's really interesting because that's it's like another tactic that you can that that a, a company can employ to prevent people from competing with it um that that like doesn't even pretend to have any kind of public good uh in in mind and how how it works it's just like yeah you're a company you can keep secrets and the law will help you do that and so that's i think that's one of these things as Earlier, I was talking about, you know, subsidies to the centralization of the economy, where it might not be economical to have things be as centralized as they are, but uh, institutions help out, and I think that's definitely one of them. And the patent system is so one how of them. How far into the pro? First of all, this is fantastic. I, I love talking to you because this is like the um, we're like the goofus and galan of intelligence. I ask <laughs> you a stupid question, and for five minutes you answer it really well thought out and intelligently. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's only because I've been hanging out with these nerds for ten years and we've been talking about this stuff that I have any idea. And regardless of that, like we're still so far away from being able to actually navigate the specific complexities of something like the patent system that you know because it's interesting yeah but it's like we still have a, a a long way to go to so then then let's let's let me theorize and make ask a question for a second so you, so you start out with a bunch of well-intended people in a small like crowdfunded lab trying to make insulin 
um, in a way that, you know, is different and new and maybe would make it uh, possible for people to make in smaller labs around the world so there wouldn't be infrastructure problems around moving the insulin to people who need it. But is the irony that if you figured out how to do it, that you'd have to become a multi-billion dollar corporation to get it accomplished? Do you think you'd end up becoming the thing you're working around at the moment? Well, I- And would, because of the way the system's set up, would it almost be necessary for that to happen? Well, that's, that's I don't really, want to break your that's heart. That's a good question, but I don't. So, I think if if our work is going to in any way be the basis of a product, uh, we're not going to be the ones to directly manufacture it. Um, it's not completely out of the question, but as we've both kind of alluded to, like setting up a company that complies with all the regulations takes an enormous amount of effort and capital, and that is right. part of what makes the market not a competitive market. Um, so um, so if you got to that spot, you would need someone to come in who was big enough, but not too big, to want to take that idea and move it to the next level. Yeah, and that's basically yeah. generics manufacturers. Um, okay. And, and it's a little, this is where it's a little dicey because it's not like a generics manufacturer couldn't work this out on their own. Um, so... And, and, and we're seeing with the, the EpiPen coverage and all of the scrutiny that's going on in generics now that um, we're reminded of the fact that um, big companies can actually bribe smaller companies to not compete with them. And this is, this is um, I believe this is protected by the law. This is not seen as an anti-competitive measure, um, which is um, probably has at least a few economists rolling in their graves right now, like the idea that a, a big player in a market bribing a small player in a market to not compete with them is not. Just to say, look, here, we're going totally to give up. you some yeah. money and don't do this. Yeah. You know what? I, I always wonder if that, if it's a wives tale, that story of so long ago that a gentleman invented a, a light bulb that wouldn't burn out and general electric had him come in for a meeting, had him bring in all of his plans and all of his drawings and all of his, uh, all of his light bulbs, and they bought it from him and destroyed it all right in front of him before he left the room. I always wonder if that's a if that's a wives' tale or if that's really something that happened. Yeah, you um, know, if it's not literally it's true, I think idea. it's a good metaphor for how a lot of things work. So, um, right, um, because that because that really becomes interesting because if you got to a point where it was a, a scalable, sellable idea. You, you. I'm assuming because of where you started and what your goal is, you'd want to make sure it got it got brought to market. But how do you even know that you're selling it to the right person in that spot? Like, like to the right entity, to a company who's really going to take your baby and and move it along the way it needs to be raised. It's such a, it's such a. Oh my God, I don't. All right, all right listen. Let's get off of that because it's, it's breaking my heart a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. so how far system, have you come? Have you made insulin? The system steals your babies from you. Is the is the bottom line, I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's the name of this episode. <laughs> the system steals your babies. <laughs> um, but, but so have you made insulin? Have you ever brought your own blood sugar down with something you've created? All right, let's take a break from this futuristic talk about Anthony and him one day making insulin in his kitchen with something similar to a bread machine or a food processor, and talk about today, the now, the right now, the how to stay healthy today. I'm gonna mention this again because I think it just makes the point so well. Arden's latest endocrinologist appointment, her A1C was 5.7. Standard deviation is fantastic. 
No crazy highs, no crazy lows, a nice steady blood sugar. How does that happen? Well, it happens with fine-tuning insulin. It happens when you understand how insulin works in your body and when you understand the timing of the insulin. You know, little boluses here, little bumps and basal rates there, little bolus, little basal, little bolus, little basal. It's a give and take. It's a process. It's a daily adjustment. Sometimes it's an hourly adjustment. So you kind of just can't make these adjustments, you know, with injections. I mean, I guess you could if you want to inject yourself a ton of times, but if you saw how many times Arden gets insulin during the day, or how many times we make small adjustments to basal rates, you would see that it's a lot easier with an insulin pump. The Omnipod insulin pump makes it even that much better. Why? Because it's tubeless, because it doesn't have to disconnect for activities or showering or swimming or, you know, sports. So you're constantly 24 hours a day able to make these small adjustments that keep your blood sugar stable, steady, and where you want it to be. I'm telling you right now, my daughter's A1C is never, ever going to be a 5.7 without the technology that we use today. It is a huge part due to the Omnipod. Just go to myomnipod.com forward slash demo to try a free, no obligation, non-functioning pod today. You try it on, you'll see how you like it, you'll see you do like it, and then you'll make the switch. myomnipod.com forward slash demo or the links in your show notes. Do you remember the last question I asked Anthony? Have you ever injected insulin that you've made into yourself? Oh, no, no. Um, Not even close. A long, a long time before I ever and considered injecting myself with something that came out of my own uh, uh, yeah but, well it wouldn't be it's not even it's not even legal right to do something like you couldn't use it anyway well, I don't or... know I think if I made it and I use it and no one else is involved it might be fine or at least I think there was I'm not sure how the law works or you know the law might even contradict itself on this point which it often does but there was a, I think there was a public remark by an FDA regulator at like a biohacking conference where he said, we're not, we don't care about people doing things to themselves. We regulate the market. So it, you know, we become interested when you're trying to put things out for the public to use. Well, not to oversimplify and to stick with our Spider-Man concept from earlier, but I do want to caution you that Harry Osborne was at some point just a good guy who wanted to see if his green goblin formula worked. And so I do want you to be, I do want you to be very careful, Anthony. Uh, but, but, and and I had to dumb it down a little bit here. So, so, so I could feel better about the conversation for a second. I, um, yeah, yeah, your yell hits me right in the face once in a while while you're talking. I was like, wow, I thought I was bright. And then Anthony started talking and now I realize I'm like an average guy. Am I using, (laughs) am I using SAT words on you? No, no, it's not that it's, it's, (laughs) and, and see, you probably don't to get off topic for a second. You probably don't hear it, but, your thoughts are very clear and linear, and when you speak, it's so obvious that you understand from soup to nuts exactly what you're talking about and all of the effects uh, that come in from around that 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 subject. It, it's I don't know how many people you talk to who aren't like you in the course of a day, but sometimes words just come out of my mouth, and then later I think, huh. That didn't really have any purpose, but but you you in this situation maybe listen maybe I get you at home I pull out a PlayStation and a six pack and maybe you don't make any sense either I don't know but um, but your your mind works in a very specific way that I imagine lends to the things that you love to do and and probably you know is what got you looking for hacker magazines when you were a kid but it's it's really interesting to hear you speak because you are not telling a story you're you're recanting steps 
and it's it, there's a difference and it's very interesting so i appreciate it but you're just reminding well, me that yeah. i'm not very bright <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i think a lot of it is just that i've had to understand this very clearly in order to talk about it with other yeah. people and yeah. not completely waste their time and so i've tried to you know get get a, a clear sense of of uh of how everything works beforehand before I go and go on your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, no, I really appreciate it. Trust uh, me, you've prepared yeah, way more I than I did. Did not have a yeah, <laughs> if I had had a six pack before this podcast, I probably would not be making as much yeah, sense. So well, maybe we'll try you were right maybe about we'll that. try that one time, Anthony. <laughs> so um, uh, <laughs> okay, so but anyway. So we're yeah, have we made insulin? No. Um here's what we've done. So so we we decided we would just start with the normal, uh, the, 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 the gene that produces insulin in humans exactly as it is in humans. Um, and then we have some ideas for um, how we might tinker with that in the future um, to make it easier to produce. But right now we're just working with it uh, straight out of humans. Um, and taking that, we're putting it into a... Um, plasmid, which is a circular piece of DNA that bacteria can use, and we're putting that into uh, E. coli, and we're, we're growing up the E. coli, we're inducing them to express the insulin, and we're trying to purify the pro-insulin. We're trying to purify that out and see if we've actually done that, because that's the first step that we need to do before we can do anything else. So this is just kind of shaking down our our technique and our equipment in the lab and going through the basic steps that we need to go through that we need to use to um to build on everything else that we want to do on so we have done that um has been what we've been doing for most of the past year um is going through iterations of that and finding problems and starting back over from the beginning. So, and so, um, so a year, you've been at it for a year. How do you, are you most of a year? I think we really started the lab work in like January. Are we talking about every day, like a full-time job or are you, is this something you do in your spare time? How does that work? Uh, there, so I, I have other work to do and everyone else does as okay. well. And that's part of what has made uh, made it difficult to make progress. I mean, I've talked to people who have worked in academic labs and they've said that the rate that we're making progress at is actually pretty comparable to what they've seen. So that's encouraging. But um, just looking at it from our perspective, um, the most the most talented and experienced people in the techniques that we're using are people whose skills are in high demand. So Often they have they have jobs, and if if they don't at the time, then they're going to go get one very soon because a lot of people are interested in working with them. So, um, well, is that is, is that sort are, of a sideways goal of yours? Like, are you hoping someone kind of like in in academia comes by and says, "Hey, this is a great idea. We'd like to take it in house and fund it." Well, some there are some hints that we might be able to collaborate with people in academic labs. So we're still trying to figure that out. But hopefully, yes, um, it would be great if 
the this collaboration became bigger and uh, more people got involved in our project and if multiple independent efforts sprang up around the idea, all of those things would be awesome. And I'm trying to do whatever I can to to um, help that along. So um, that so that, that's something we're still working on. And meanwhile, in the lab, we're working on just the the basics. And we want to hit this first milestone of making the the human pro-insulin. And then um, just to clarify, pro-insulin is the protein that is coded for directly by the insulin gene. And when it comes right out of the ribosome, in order to turn that protein into the actual active form of insulin, um, a couple other things need to happen. Some enzymes need to float by and cut out the middle part and bring the two ends of it together in a specific way. And then you have actual insulin. Hmm. So the middle part is the C-peptide, which is used. That's what they're testing for to see if you have type 1 diabetes, is if you have no C-peptide, then they know that you aren't producing insulin. So you may have heard of it no, yeah. because of that. And there's some, some speculation that it might have some, some role in in making you healthier in some way but so i've heard as far as anyone anthony let me just say i i I, an older gentleman um who who i've spoken to in the past said that the c-peptide doesn't exist in man-made insulin anymore but it did at one point and that he felt that there was a decline in his overall health after those and that switch in insulin happened and he doesn't base it on any you know study or anything like that it's just it's a feeling he had about his own life and it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because, and I know that some people um, like animal insulin better, but and I don't know if those keep the C peptide or not, but they might. But but yeah, so that was another thing that I was actually interested in was this is a long time ago. Um, it was one of the things that got me interested in it was that um, you know if we were making our own insulin, we could we could keep the C peptide or something. Uh, uh, actually, now that I look at the details, it might it might be a fair amount of trouble to do that, but something we could try have control over the process. It's interesting. So, so the last year has just shown you, just from our our quick conversation here, that you could see why C peptide might have been removed from man-made insulin. It it adds to the process um, to the problem of the process. Well, if you know, if we weren't like a ragtag group of rogues in an old bocce court in Oakland trying to make insulin, like uh it would be a lot a lot harder to justify skipping booting it i think because the the marginal cost of of the of the drug itself is is minuscule uh it's it's uh hard to say how close to zero but it, i think it's it's zero for all practical purposes so to to put the c peptide in i don't think that would really change anyone's bottom line very much, especially given these these insane margins that they have that they have complete control over where they could just change the price whenever they feel like it. So it makes me wonder too because because we were talking about before how a how a drug eventually does go off um patent and it goes to generic. And then the company who it's funny, Anthony, because I see both sides of it. You know, I I wish insulin was cheaper and more readily available. And at the same time you, you know, you've described over the last 45 minutes the process of just this, you know, trying to get this one idea 
down. It's obviously it's it's a huge undertaking. Companies are probably bringing in some really great minds on it. They're paying them the money that they deserve. Uh, you know, they're they're getting them their health insurance and you know putting a building up and making labs. Everyone's got cost in it. They probably have tried 150 million things prior to this that didn't work out that we don't know about that they had to fund too. And at the same time, they are making pretty amazing profits. So that's hard to argue with. But, but, but I guess the idea is, is if if once they're once they're they finally hit a product that works and it, it helps people and it's in the market and they're making money on it, then the then they lose their patent on it. Then they have to change the molecule a little bit so they can repatent it differently so they can continue to market it, sell it, help people, make a profit, keep the company going for the next thing. It's uh, maybe that's how something like C-peptide gets taken out at some point. Maybe it's just the company saying, hey, we have to change this molecule enough that it's something we can re-patent. Yeah, well, there. I don't, again, this is an area of law that's really complex and I can't say anything for sure about it, but I do know that they just they just changed the formulation of Lantus or whatever. I think it's the same company that makes Lantus. You know, this Tojo thing. Yes. Um, which is totally not the Admiral of Japan in World War II. Um, <laughs> They're running out of names for drugs. By yeah. The way, so. uh, <laughs> but um, in any case, uh, I think that was just making it three times more concentrated, right? So, um, and they they did some studies to say that it might be better, but I think it was all inconclusive. But in any case, it was a new formulation. So it's this new thing and it's got a new name. And I think that- And here we go. That renews some set of things. It might just be that it refreshes their marketing around it, which is actually a big part of the puzzle. And it's not something that is- Talked about, that, I that, guess. That, yeah, so-, yeah. so you know, a lot of what keeps the new drugs pushing the old drugs off the market is just um, marketing um, and not necessarily the IP considerations alone. So well, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, there's if you take away, if you st if you put we've pulled a curtain back, if you put the curtain back and everything seems nice again. You know, like on on the surface, I can talk about it and say, you know, I'm up for people doing anything because, like, my daughter uses an insulin that I don't think as many people use, and it works really well for her. And she tried others before that that didn't work as well for her. So I I like the idea that there's more and more and stuff to try. The reasons why it happens, I'm stuck between caring and not caring. Like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, like what do I care why it happens as long as it's happening and we're getting different products and some of them might be better. And at the same time, not caring probably leads to a blind eye and the blind eye probably turns into insulin costing way more than it should. And, and not just insulin, by the way, but, but other things like that. And so there's a line to walk between living your life and being an advocate, like I guess in the space and you're steeped in one side of it pretty deeply. And, and, but at the same time, you're a person living with diabetes. And it, and if we go back a half an hour and listen to you say it again, like it, there was a point in your life where you were just like, look, I've got insurance. I asked for the insulin. It shows up. I give them 20 bucks for it and it's mine, it, you know? So, and there's, I mean, you have to admit it was probably more fun living like that than living like this now, right? Well, I don't know. Like a lot of what got me on this road was I looked at what the academic researchers were doing. And then I looked at what was on the market and I said, 
you know, I want some of the stuff that those academic researchers are doing and I want to try it out. And um, uh, I think I'm probably smart enough not to kill myself. So, uh, and and then I started to look at, you know, there there are things that have pretty good evidence that they work pretty well and they still aren't a product. And, you know, why is that? And Why does that happen? Um, yeah, so, so, so there's this idea that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, which is that you just kind of hand these large companies uh, essentially free money and that you can trust them to put that into research and then you can trust them to go over everything that they research and bring the best of it to market. Um, but I have not seen things work out that way. I've seen them take that free money that they're handed and put a lot of it into marketing uh, to support their existing products, which is um, all told a much lower risk strategy. So you can kind of understand why they would do that. Um, but it's, and I've seen them give a lot of that money to their executives as well. Uh, but, um, it's, it's funny what you that, just said, uh, go ahead finish your thought. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, so none of that actually is, is I think doing nearly as much as could be done to get the best research done and get the fruits of that research out to the patients. Um, there are a lot of places in, in this process that exists where that gets sidetracked. And to the point where if I just look at what people are doing in university labs with way less funding, I see all of these amazing things that I think people should at least be able to try and can't yet. So how do we make that happen? I don't know. Uh, but so so playing devil's advocate for a second, and, and it, it's interesting because what you brought up is that so much money goes into marketing, right? So on one hand, having different companies in the same space is good because it spurs on everybody to do better, to keep trying, to try to beat each other. But then part of the idea of trying to beat each other and, and is they have to sell it at the end. And so then so much effort goes into marketing it that so little effort goes into the rest of it. It almost makes me feel like um, you know, to draw a strange parallel, but you know, like the DC comics movies that are out now, like, you know, like suicide squad just came out and there was so much marketing into putting that movie onto the, uh, on, uh, you know, into the world to make sure that people went and saw it. And you wonder, wouldn't they have just gone and seen it anyway? Had you just made a better movie? Like, like, you, you know what I mean? Like, like if, if you would have put a quarter of the effort into making the thing as you put into making sure I'd go see it, Maybe I would have just heard about it from someone else and gone on my own. And I wonder about that too. Like maybe if the drugs were just that much better and the insurance companies, the formularies and all that other crap wasn't in the way, maybe somebody would just hear from somebody else like, look, I use this insulin. And to be honest, I don't get as many, you know, you know, roll, I don't go on the roller coasters off. My, my blood sugar doesn't shoot up after I eat or whatever it ends up being. And then at the same time, I feel like I see the other side of it. Like, I get it. Like, we've got this drug. We put all this money into making it. We need to get it into hands. The more hands we get it into, the more money we make, the more we can do more things. And, and, but then it becomes what you're talking about, too. And then, but yeah. then suddenly there's some guy at the top who's, you know, whose wife is driving around in a Mercedes on the company's dime or something like that. Or, you know, that's probably the least of it, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's just such a, it's such a strange thing because, Anthony, I think that most of the innovation that exists in this country comes from capitalism. And at the same time, I can tell you that most of the roadblock to innovation in this country comes from capitalism. So 
what's the answer? You know what I mean? Well, I think you might not um, agree with me. I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, um, I I don't think I would say that the innovation comes from capitalism. I think that capitalism is really good, and you know, capitalism could mean a million different things to a million different people. So, I'll I'll say that for what I mean right now is um, a system where you you have you let market incentives determine uh, outcomes. Um, I, I think that that's really good at taking a bunch of known quantities and um, making small decisions to optimize the efficiency of what you're doing. But I don't think it's good for making big leaps and big changes in how you do things that could change how whole portions of the overall system works because um you know if you think of uh the the invisible hand um and where it's pushing you it's this this is this is a really kind of nerdy idea from uh like optimization theory which is something that I studied in college but it's a really important idea I think for this discussion is that that I think that like if you imagine that you're you imagine you're on this landscape of possibilities and you're trying to get to the highest point on this landscape the the invisible hand of market forces is 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 going to always lead you to to look at where you're standing right now and head up and so that's going to eventually lead you to the top of whatever hill you happen to start out on and then you're going to get to the top of that hill and you're going to look around and every direction is going to be down so you're just going to stay there um but if you stop looking just at your own feet and you look out across the landscape and try to see as far as you can and look around in every direction, you might find that there's another hill that is much higher. And you might have to walk down the hill you're on to climb up this other one that is a, that is a much higher one. And, you know, you, you have to endure that period of going down for a while, but you're going to be much better off in the long run. And that is something that market forces fight every step of the way because as soon as you start trying to go down, they say, no, 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 go right back up. You're going down. Um, but actually, you know, there's this longer term consideration uh, in play where if you, you know, you have to go down a while to get higher uh, sometimes. So that's where I think um, taking these short term incentives off of people and just letting them follow their own curiosity is really important. And that's what I think is the advantage of the hackerspace is you can do whatever you want, whatever crazy possibility uh, you're interested in, if you're interested in it, like that's all that you need to get started. And um, you know, you need to get the resources from somewhere. And that's another place where like the market forces are kind of fighting you, but um, uh Fundamentally, like you're in control of where you head on this landscape, and I think individual people are much better than um, any kind of bureaucratic organization or corporation is in in you know looking out on the landscape and just seeing where their imagination says there might be the the much higher summit that they could get up to. So I think we need to 
and, and and if we look at kind of the history of science, like, um, I, I I'll have to find the historian of science who's actually documented this for you and get back to you. But um, the most vibrant periods of science and technology, I think, are the ones where um, you had a lot of small independent actors um, working on lots of different things. Um, fundamentally, science is experimental because it deals with uncertain things. So you just need to try lots of different things. And just having a few big organizations pushing a ton of resources after very few ideas probably isn't the best strategy for uncovering what, where, you know, the general region of the truth lies. Um, because it's a, it's a big space that you're exploring, this space of all all possibilities in some intricate technical field. So you need to spread out when you do that. It just, it seems like, it seems like when it's one person driven by their own motivation and their motivation isn't to make money, then their motivation just seems to be to find good in what they're doing and do more good and, and find a way to do good better. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, it just, as you're talking, it, I mean, obviously, you can't wave a magic wand over the world and make a change. But, you know, if companies that made drugs, as an example, or, or things that helped people in general, I guess if those things were not privatized, if they were, you know, I don't I don't even know what to say. You know, if they were a, an organization that was was run like a business, you know, but not like a business and they could keep it to keep themselves going and keep doing good then maybe we would find more things like what you're talking about more more idea you know small ideas that become big ideas and and you know ideas off in the distance that that nobody's focusing on because there's no way to market it and package it and sell it yeah um, yeah. yeah this is and and this is actually uh in a way a pretty hot topic in like the what do we do about the economy alternative economic space is is like the idea of a basic income or something that would just free people up to to some extent to do what they themselves determine they want to do or you know to have at least some idea of at least some portion of your time is your own and you don't have to spend all of your time um trying to get doing, to the head of the rat race yeah or doing yeah. what you need to do for money you know i think there's a lot of brilliant minds I mean, this is something I'm aware of because I come from a kind of working class background and yeah, the people around me, they were quite smart, but they were so, so uh, like oppressed by the concerns of, of, of either trying to get money or trying to turn that into some sort of a status to get out, get out of the straits they were in into slightly less desperate ones that, um, you know, their minds were just, they they had the minds that could be contributing to something like science or the public good in some way, but they were... They spent their day kept... making money to buy a loaf of bread so they could eat the bread so they could go back yeah. to sleep to get up in the morning and make more money to buy more bread. Yeah, it wasn't quite a loaf yeah. of bread, but it was it was basically that. that. They weren't, they were looking at their own feet. And, and you know, if you take a, a brilliant brain, but the eyes are just looking down at the ground nothing happens. Um, so I think we need, whatever the mechanism is, we need to get people 
looking around at all the possibilities around them and working on that. And for that, you have to kind of free people up a little bit and you can't just uh, turn the screws on them with, with uh, you know, strongest possible economic incentives you can arrange. You know, it sounds such a, like what you just said made me feel like it'd be so cool if even just a pharma company would just put together, you know, a couple of labs and make them like after hours accessible to their employees. Like, you know, just to, just to let them go in and, and tinker, like give them that freedom. Like maybe it's a person who can't pull themselves away from their nine to five job because of their responsibilities, but would still love to be involved in things like you're talking about. And, and maybe it doesn't even have to stop it pharma companies or or at science like you know like i don't know you know just you know you try to imagine all the people that work at a company who are great at social media in their personal life but have nothing to do with your marketing department while your marketing department's off spending all kinds of money trying to find a way to reach people um you know i find myself saying that a couple of times a year when when companies contact me to talk about stuff and it's funny that in the course of the conversation what i recognize is that they're asking me, I have this big, you know, I have this big group of people and they all went to college for this one thing and we can't reach as many people online as you do at home sitting in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. How does that happen? You know, and what do you think, Scott? And then when you tell them what you think, they immediately say, most of them, there's some that haven't, but most of them say, well, that's not how we do it. And then they just, just discard your idea. And I was like, wow, so you came, you asked, how do we break out of this cycle we're in? I give you an answer and you say, oh, that that's not fit into our cycle though. It's just such an interesting, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like, it's just interesting how people's minds work. They're doing something that they know is repetitive and silly and getting them nowhere and costing them way more than it should. And the minute you say, well, yeah, try this. They go, well, no, that's not how it's done. It's just, uh, it's people's minds work that way for reasons that not all people, but a lot of people's minds work that way. And it's, it's maddening. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's just what happens when you put people in this context where, where everyone knows that things work a certain way and that there are consequences if you don't do things that way. And it has nothing to do with the results that you're getting. Um, and you're you're not allowed to have your own agency and take your own initiative and take risks, uh, and um, so that you know th those people might have just been ticking off a box on the procedure that said like look into alternatives, and they looked into them, or you know who knows, or maybe they're just genuinely interested, but there's nothing they right. can do. So I also think that sometimes you're you know you get into a job and you know you're a younger guy. We didn't ask you you're married or you have kids or anything. I imagine you don't. Yeah, actually I don't. Okay, just because I imagine you don't because you have a lot of time. And so, yeah, exactly. yeah, so. <laughs> well, and I so, don't have a lot of time, but I would have even I you know, I couldn't even think of doing this uh right. otherwise. Um That's what I meant. Yeah, it, yeah. That happens like like I was hoping that the the hacker space would become this kind of neutral ground where people from the companies can go after hours and then meet up with people who are in academia and meet up with just random people who are interested and are not part of any institution and they could all come together and, you know, talk to each other, work together, see what happens. Um, but the people from the companies are super busy because they lead this, you know, corporate life and they probably do have families and kids and 
like that's their life. That's it. Yeah. And yeah, even, it's not it's not that easy to walk away from once you've got a kid who wants to go to college and a house that they live in and a car that gets them to where they're going and, and you know, everyone needs to eat and have health insurance and and sort of maybe it is just a young man's game, like the idea of of, you know, pushing pushing limits might be a younger person's thing. Because, you know, I've listen, I've spoken to people at companies. I just had a conversation recently. I hope the person's listening. Terrible at their job. Okay. And so but you realize <laughs> towards the end of their career, just look, I just got to come in here a couple hundred more times, not screw this up too much. I get a pension. I leave. You, you know what I mean? Like I'm just trying to get to the end. And even that, Anthony, is understandable. You, you know what? On a human level, like, look, I've put... I've put decades into this. I'm almost done. I'm not screwing this up now with your fancy new idea that probably nobody's going to like and I'm going to look like I'm the the author of this bad idea when it's over. And and it's 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 very simple to see how we get stuck into ruts like this. Yeah, um, yeah you know, it's well, easy you, to understand. It's the wrong incentives for anything involving science, uh frankly. Uh well, you were yeah. making me think. You're making me think that, you know, it's, it's a podcast. But I started it a year and a half ago, maybe, and I was just initially trying to just branch my blog out. And I thought people weren't reading as much. I'll try a podcast. And now I might get an email or a note or a message daily from someone who's like, "All I'm doing is listening to the stories on the podcast." And and trust me, Anthony, I'm no great like diabetes like genius. We're just talking to a lot of people who have type one diabetes coming up with ideas, uh, you know, around, you know, pre-bolusing insulin or, you know, or, you know, changing basal rates or just kind of, you know, how you think of your blood sugar. And I'm getting notes every day that say my A1C went down a point, it went down a point and a half, went down two points. My kid's A1C went down two points. And all I'm doing is listening to the podcast, being a little more aggressive with insulin or, or whatever it is we're talking about in the moment. And so it's my inclination to want to take that to more people. And how do you find those people? And then my first thought is, well, I guess I should find a company who wants to somehow, you know, help me meet those people and get out into the world because we're talking about going out into the real world. And that takes travel and it takes lodging and it takes time and it takes money. And and it just it's funny. I, I'm realizing as I'm talking to you, I took this new idea of a podcast, this kind of a new way of reaching people. It worked. And then I'm trying to repackage it back into why the people looked for the podcast. Um, and that made me sad just now. <laughs> so uh, you've made me no, sad, Anthony. <laughs> you, you answered your own question there, though, I think. Like, I did. You, you, uh, and, you know, coming from the Bay Area, uh, I'm steeped in this culture of, you know, take your brilliant idea and make your own startup around it. And sometimes that's... Uh, Sometimes that is kind of used in disingenuous ways, but right now it sounds like you know, you're you're already doing the right thing, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I just I, I'm again, and I just got done saying this the other day. The my daughter's A1C is like spectacular right now, and it's even because of the podcast. It's because I've taken the time out to pause and talk kind of thoughtfully about you know diabetes management ideas, and you know I've you know, you freeze your life for a minute to talk about this, not just try to figure out why a bolus didn't work while you're vacuuming the floor and the dog's throwing up on you and your son needs to be driven across town, but to actually stop for an hour and talk about it and think about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, and now I'm thinking the podcast just may have helped me 
understand better how to make the podcast help people better, which is now a, a, a three-level thought that, that almost confused me. But because of your yellness here, I'm, I'm feeling smarter, so I followed along. So, Well, that's great. <laughs> and if you came up with a pamphlet that summarized your uh, your recommendations, I would certainly buy that pamphlet because yeah. one of the things that I don't spend a lot of time reading uh, about since I've, I'm trying to grapple with all of these crazy things is I barely worry about just like when I should take my bolus or really simple stuff like that. Yeah. It's a, I'll listen, Anthony, here's, here's my nickels worth of free advice. And by the way, we don't give advice on the podcast, Anthony. We like to say that nothing you hear on the juice box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Um, but, but just understanding how insulin works in your body and timing it better. It's, it's just such a big deal. Like, you know, it really is being aggressive, you know, when the, you know, I don't know if, if you have a glucose monitor, um, they certainly make things, they like being aggressive yeah. much, um, much, I did. much easier. Yeah, I did when I could afford one. Yeah. Well, that's because, well, see this, Anthony, you're spending all your free time not making money. We got to get you. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's the thing. Like, uh, no, it really yeah, is. If you, if, yeah. if you want to make money, like you be corporate you and to... you just, just don't screw it up and like kind of phone it in and you'll get your money and you can you can tinker around with the small things but all of the really important possibilities they're out of your reach now so i and i don't think that is a i don't think it's wise to make people face that choice but facing that choice i knew what choice i had to make so yeah well it's definitely not wise on a global uh in a global sense you, you know it it just really isn't you know maybe the reason we're not moving forward faster is because we're all focused on moving forward in ways that don't help anything but yourself really. And I mean, listen, I'm sitting in a fairly nice house and people listen to this podcast have probably been listening the whole time going, just Scott hasn't mentioned once that his wife works for a pharma company, but you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> she, and she, and, and I, but I don't have a problem with it. My, my wife went to college. She wanted to be a doctor she got out. She couldn't afford to apply to medical school. She took a job. Um, she works in drug safety for a pharma company. She's worked at a number of them. I see how much other people's lives mean to my wife and how much her work um, is focused on keeping people safe and keeping people healthy. It's a real driving force for her. I just watched her um, you know, turn down some opportunities because she thought where she was was helping more people. and And so... You know, I know the goodness in her heart. She's also not, you know, one of the overlords at the top. Um, and so, yeah. you know, but in, but at the same time, I have children and they have needs and they want clothes. And my son's getting ready to graduate from high school and he wants to go to college and he's a bright kid. And you know what I mean? Like all those things, they they get you up in the morning to make money, you know. Yeah. And, and so... I when I told you earlier I see the other side of it like I really do see all the sides of it because I'm I'm kind of living right in the middle of it. My daughter has type 1 diabetes and my wife works for a company who makes drugs. And so um I really do see the uh, I do see both sides of it. And uh, there is no easy answer that's for certain. I mean, you know, on a on a regulatory um level, obviously if the government made better decisions about how it regulates things, I'm sure that would be an easy answer, but I'm assuming as long as money exists on the planet, that's not going to happen. So, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll yeah, see. Yeah. Money can yeah. 
funny can take many forms and so can the institutions that grow up around it. So, and that's what you guys are basically doing is trying to make this take a different, take a different form, I guess. Yeah. And the thing, you know, one of the things it's really encouraging to hear that your wife is doing good work, even in the context of an imperfect organization, but we've also had people come to us at the project who are, you know, really frustrated that they can't do good work and they're, you know, they're even at the lower levels. So, so that's also something where like, I hope we can give, give people who, who want to do good work and can make the time for it an option, but also, you know, it would be nice if, you know, the, the corporation weren't quite so, uh, like total in their ambitions to to exploit their human resources and could actually uh you know give people the autonomy to determine what good work is listen i kept you way longer than i said i was going to anthony i'm i'm sorry for oh, yeah. that and i can no, hear no. my house starting I my house is starting to come alive again with people who were like he said an hour i'm not staying in this room yeah. anymore and so uh <laughs> but i really appreciate you doing this this was uh way more enlightening than I imagined it was going to be. And I had some pretty high hopes for the conversation. So uh, it means a lot to me that you took the time to do it. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure getting your perspective on things as well and yours personally and also what you can can bring from talking to so many people in the community with so many different uh, perspectives. Yeah, I think think it's important to to hear everybody's uh, perspective and you know, our lives at living with diabetes is everyone's life's fairly similar. You hear people tell the stories and on the surface, they sound very similar. But then when you really start talking and you get into the details and you go long form like this, I think then you start hearing, um, you know, personal uh, details that that enlighten and, and help other people. So I anyway, I, I really appreciate you coming on, especially it's earlier where you are. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. Anthony, have a great day. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Juice Box Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend. Show them how to subscribe. Be a podcast buddy. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got an email right there. Bing, ding, bing. It's going to be something to delete in two seconds. Actually, watch this. Yep, I just deleted it. No one wants this. Unbelievable. Anyway, be a podcast buddy. A putty. A potty. Pud. There's really no good acronym in there for... P, P, Buddy, P, B, and J. Listen, if you like the podcast, tell a friend and show them how to get it, please. Also, if you're listening online, you know you can get an app. If you got an iPhone, there's an app. It's already on your phone. Just look for it. It's called Podcast. Um, There's a good one for Google and Android and iHeartRadio and Stitcher and any podcast aggregating app, actually. You can just search Juicebox Podcast, and there it will be. Giant thank you to Omnipod for sponsoring the Juicebox podcast. Go to myomnipod.com forward slash demo with the links here in your show notes to find out more about your free non-functioning but totally wicked demo pod. Going to be back next week with a football. Unbelievable. Who's playing me back in words with friends while I'm trying to do the... Oh, this guy kicks my uh, butt all the time. I beat him twice, though, in a couple last couple of weeks. I'll tell you right now. I'm not sure who was more surprised, him or me.